If you have your Bibles, ask that you would turn to Colossians chapter 3. We'll read the first 17 verses, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. Once you have it, please stand out of respect for God's holy word. And I'll be reading from the New King James. Let us hear the word of God. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which, you were, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. It's blasphemy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Christian one another, in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May the Lord add a blessing to his holy word. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do, we've come to that Time where again we look into your word and we pray, Lord, that you would enable me to proclaim your word to your people and that your people will receive it with willing hearts. Lord, we realize, Lord, that we cannot preach without you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to, uh, to hear your word, not to hear me, but to hear what you have to tell us. And so, Lord, may we not only be hearers of the word, but doers of it as well. And so, Lord, we pray now that your blessings will be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple months ago in July, I had a young man come into my office, and he was raised by his adopted parents, and he was raised in a very loving household, in a good household. But he got a call from his natural parents, and it threw him for a loop. Because his, his natural parents gave him up for adoption uh, when he was young. And he was trying to make sense of it. He was confused a little bit what to do. He was wondering about the motives for why they called. Uh, were they calling to get money? Were they calling because they really wanted to get to know him? Uh, these were people who lived on the streets. His father was in prison. And, and it really, it, it's a really uh, he was searching for answers and it really bothered him. Conversely, a couple months before that, I had a young sailor in my office, and his father, he didn't know his dad, and he has a big hole in his heart because he wants to know his father and to have a relationship with his father. Well, he found his father, and he went and met with him. His father basically told him he wasn't interested in getting to know him. Um, his father is a music producer, well-known, and uh, his father thought he was after his money, and he was struggling with that. I would imagine that 
We all have stories similar to that, or we know people who've had stories similar to that as we struggle a little bit with our identity. We, uh, we have a, a desire to, especially as you get older, to know about family. That's why you have things like Ancestry.com. We want to know something about our history, who we are, where we came from, some of our characteristics. Why do we do what we do? Even as Christians, sometimes we are confused about our identity as a Christian. What is a Christian? You ask that question, you will get many different answers. Uh, seems like most people look at Christians as just like uh, identifying with a political party. I'm a Republican or Democrat, and we identify with that, and every four years we vote for Republican or Democrat, and that's about all that we do in um, that regard. That's the way people look at Christian, Christianity. I accepted the Lord Jesus as my Savior, and now I'm a Christian, and, and that box is checked off. But the Apostle Paul says in Colossians that being a Christian, our identity in Christ is so much more. Uh, the Apostle was dealing with uh, some commentaries called the Colossian heresy. It's a heresy that basically spoke that to know Jesus is good, but there's more. There's more that we should do. There's, uh, there's more such as uh, having secret revelations to really get to know uh, the um, ins and outs of, of uh, the spiritual world, uh, neglecting the body, the ceremonial law, asceticism, uh, where we unduly, harshly uh, punish our bodies, where we neglect the natural things that God has provided for us, such as tasting and touching and smelling these things. We wanted to do without these things. Why? Because that was also part of our um, acceptance with God. Also, the worship of angels. And the Apostle Paul talks about how these things were robbing the Colossians of their inheritance in Christ. And Paul in Colossians shares with us the importance of who Christ is. That Christ is all in all. That he is um, king of kings and Lord of lords, and, and he says, if you have received Christ, walk in him. He says in chapter 2, verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to traditions of men, such as uh, the feast days and honoring the, those different traditions and, and honoring these things that God has not put in the law. And so he says, beware that you guys are being cheated of your freeness in Christ, of loving Jesus and following Jesus and serving Jesus, and so on. And so that's why he talks about how Christ is all in all. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creations, uh, that Christ is sufficient, that he's over all thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. All things were created through him and for him. And so that's what the Apostle Paul was doing, was counteracting the, the false, uh, prof, uh, false prophets, those who were teaching false gospels and false doctrines and so on. And so Paul, in chapter 3, he tells us what our identity in Christ is, and he, tells, uh, he gives us exhortations. He tells us what it really means to be a Christian, not to uh, engage in the Colossian heresy, not to uh, refrain from eating certain foods or from following certain traditions, but he tells us what it means to really be a Christian. So the first thing he does is he exhorts us to seek those things above. 
And he tells us there in verse, uh, um, in verses, verse one through basically four, what it means to seek those things above. And he says to be a Christian, two things, death and resurrection. That's what it means to be a Christian. That Christian died, that Christ died, and that he rose again from the dead. That is the basis of our Christianity, that Jesus died and he rose again from the dead. In other words, uh, the Apostle Paul, especially he expounded in Romans 6, he talked about unity, about being unified with Christ. That we're in unity with Christ, we're one with Christ. There's a union between us and Jesus, where you Think of a married couple when they get married. We got two weddings coming up. There'll be a union between these two. And the two will become one, whereas one will benefit. When one gets a raise, the other one benefits. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is speaking about here, that there's a union with Christ, that what Christ did on the cross, we all benefit. And therefore, that's why he says that there's a connection, a oneness, that when Christ, uh, he says there in verse 3, if you were raised with Christ, if you're raised to newness of life, if you're raised to new things, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but now you have new life. Uh, uh, the Holy Spirit has shined that light on you so that you see the things of Christ. He says if you've been raised with Christ, if you're unified with Christ, if you're in union with Christ, he says what? Seek those things which are above. That's what, that's what he tells us, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. He says that in verse 1. Seek those things that are above. Why? Because we've been raised with Christ. We have a new life. Our citizenship is in heaven. That we, our new home is in heaven. And therefore, we ought to seek those things which are in heaven. It does not mean, he says in verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. doesn't mean that we can't give attention to the things of, in this world. We have to. We have, that would contradict what the Apostle Paul was saying. But he's saying our affections, our hopes, our dreams, our goals are no longer in this world. But our affections are up in heaven. Our affections are with, uh, with Jesus in heaven. And so he says, lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven in Matthew 6 and not in this world. Our love for this world is not the same. We're in the world but we're not of the world. We're strangers and pilgrims here. And that's what Paul is saying. So if we have been raised with Christ, then we ought to seek those things which are above. And then he tells us in verse 3, he talks about death. He says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What did we die to? Well, we died to the power of sin. Well, again, we died to the things of this world, to the affections of this world. When Jesus died on the cross, our old man was, uh, the power of sin has died in us. And so that's what it means that we have been, in principle, we have died with Christ. And our life is hidden with Christ in God. We are secure in Christ. That, um, that, that our lives are safely kept by the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he says that now we have a, a new nature, a new life. And he says, when Christ, well, who is our life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. And so the Apostle Paul lays out what being a Christian really is about, that we've been raised with Christ, that we've died with Christ. But then that goes to the second point. He says, put to death, in verse 5, your members. Wait a minute. First he says, we've died with Christ, but he tells us to put to death those things of Christ. What is Paul talking about? Is he... Contradicting, contradicting himself? 
When you look at Romans 6, he talks about that we've been buried with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, and it sounds so wonderful. But in chapter 7, he says, the good things I should do, I don't do. The bad things that I, 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 I ought not do, I find myself doing. And so in other words, he's saying that what we are in principle, yes, we've died with Christ, we've raised with Christ, but in practice, we still have a long ways to go. That's what he means, um, the Heidelberg Catechism says that even for the holiest man, that sanctification is just the beginning. We are slow process of, of sanctification. I like to liken it to the Iraqi war. Um, about, what, 10 or 15 years ago when we went to Iraq, we took out Saddam Hussein pretty easily. It wasn't that difficult. We overtoppled the regime. We overtoppled, we, uh, we toppled Saddam's kingdom, his rule, his principle, all of those things were toppled. But the problem was that there was insurgents. There was little pockets of, of uh, sympathizers there. And we had to go and deal with them. We had to go city to city, town to town, sometimes house to house. And that's where the battle took place. In principle, Iraqi, Iraq was, was overtaken. But the reality was that we had to go and root out those insurgents. And that's what sin is. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. We died to the power of sin. But the presence of sin is there. And sin is always seeking to get the mastery, always seeking to come back. Always, sin is not happy that it's been toppled. So sin is always seeking to worm its way back in there to get the power again. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. So yes, we died in principle, but in practice, sin is still a big problem. And that's why the apostle has to tell us to put to death certain things. Well, I can't go over all of these because I will be here all night, unless you want me to. No, I'm just joking. But I'll just uh, do it in categories. Just say a couple things about each of uh, the categories where he's telling us to put to death. Well, he's, why does he tell us to put these things to death? Because they're unclean. It's unclean. It's not who we are. We've been risen with Christ. Like you, you, you moms, you, uh, maybe you clean up your house and you get your, you mop your floor, you vacuum the, the rug, and, and your bed's all made up, and your kid's been outside in the dirt, just rubbing all of them in the dirt. And feet, the, the shoes are dirty, and, and he wants to go and plop on your couch. You're like my mom, do not sit on that couch. Take those clothes off. Why? Because they're dirty. I clean this house. Everything is spotless. And you have all this dirt. You, you will ruin my house. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is telling us, in a sense, that those are unclean. Those are filthy. We have been risen with Christ. We have died with Christ. We are a new creature in Christ. And therefore, he says, put off. But it's not at one time. We have to continually put these things off. Well, what does he tell us to put off? First of all, he tells us to put off sexual sins. There he talks about it in verse 5, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Um, it's amazing in our country, in our world, 
The Colossian church had to deal with it. The Corinthian church had to deal with it. It's not new to our world how sex is glorified and how much it is exalted and how we have normalized it. But for the apostle, he tells us to put it off, to put it off. That young people, there's a lot of young people here, make a vow of purity. Make a vow that you will not dishonor your bodies. Why? Because you are the new person. You are a new person in Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this before I say what I'm going to say is that I don't know anything going on in this church. Pastor Eric doesn't tell me. Pastor Troxel. I even tried to uh, tickle Pastor Troxel, but he, didn't, he still didn't tell me. <laughs> I was joking. But <laughs> I don't know anything going on in this church. So, but... What I'm going to say is what I've dealt with and experienced, that as a chaplain, we do a lot of counseling. One of the issues that I've dealt with, especially with young men, is pornography. Pornography is an epidemic. It is killing our young men. We talk about drugs. We talk about um, uh, video games, whatever. But pornography seems to just go under the radar. It is bigger than all of the major sports uh, industries combined. It is destroying our young men. Young men, you will be confronted with these things. Maybe you're struggling with it now because uh, there were young men who were Christians coming to my office saying how much they struggled with this thing of pornography and how challenging it was. And so even in a great reformed church like this, maybe you're struggling with it as well. My, a couple of assignments before, there was a, a, there was a contractor. Uh, she was a very attractive lady. She had just married a Marine, and we were uh, very friendly. She came to my office one day crying, says, I'm leaving. She's from Washington, D.C., so we got along pretty well because that's where I'm from. And she says, I'm leaving. I'm leaving my husband. I'm like, why? Because I caught him looking at porn on his phone. And she was just devastated because she says, I'm not enough. You know, we just got married. I'm not enough for him that he has to do something like that. After calming her down and I was able to counsel them and also they got counseled from the church. Last I heard, they're doing well. But it just goes to show that that sin of pornography will impact young people, your marriage, your God-given, God-blessed sexual life, and so on. It will destroy it if you continue on this. You think you can just look at it and then not do it. It is, some people call it like crack cocaine. That's how powerful it is. And that's why Paul says, put these things to death. Put it to death. He gives two reasons why. One is because of this, because the wrath of God is on those people who, on the sons of disobedience. John Calvin says that's just that, that, um, that sin is that, that fornication is like a magnet for God's judgment on us. That God's wrath, God's anger is upon us. And for believers, he says, put those things off. And secondly, because that's what we once were. He says in verse uh, 7, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. That was you before. That's not you now. So therefore, he says, put those things to death. Is there any wonder that Jesus says that 
If your eye offends you, cut it off. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Why is that? Because he says it's better to go into heaven with one eye than hell with two eyes or two hands. In other words, he says if you have to get rid of your phone, your computer, whatever it is, he says cut that off. Why? Because you're a new man in Christ or a new woman in Christ. And so that you are a new person in Jesus. So that's the first category. The second category, I like how the ESV commentary says it's abusive language. Now, maybe we don't have a problem with the first set, but I think all of us have a problem with abusive language at times. He says, put off these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, lying. These things, he says, put them off. Now, I'm not going to go through these, um, but let me just say this is that our tongues are deadly. That's why James says controlling the tongue is so important. You can say 100 positive things, but we remember the negative things. And, and the things that give the deepest wounds is what people have said to us in the past. Maybe 40 or 50 years ago, you remember what the bully said to you. You remember what your teacher said to you or what your parents said to you. That was negative. It never leaves. Nothing destroys a church, nothing destroys a marriage, nothing destroys a home or a family than a tongue that is not governed. And these things destroy, these things grieve the Holy Spirit and they destroy relationships. All of these things, being angry, uh, being quick to be angry and wrath and a filthy mouth. These things are not what God would have for us to be. It's easy on Sundays for us to come and regulate our tongues. What about when we're at work or at home? What about when we're out, young people, with your friends? How easy is it for us to have a loose tongue? And what is the tongue? The tongue is a reflection of the heart. How often you say, I didn't mean that. Or we've even become more, husband and wife, we often become even more. You made me say that. You bring the worst out of me. That's what's in our heart. No one can make us do anything. Jesus says, it's out of the heart the mouth speaks. And so he says that we have to put that off. And then the last thing he tells us to put off, I, was, I struggled with uh, a term, but I would say just being a snob. Being a snob, a racist, a bigot, a sexist, Whatever you want, whatever the old man always is looking to be superior over another person. Young people, again, I'm talking to young people. You know, when you uh, maybe you're at school or wherever, you know, you sometimes you might have some Christian brothers or sisters who you're a little embarrassed of because they're a little awkward, a lot weird, and you really admire the football player or or the cool guys or whatever, and you sort of discard them. Well, the Bible says that's not to be the case. Well, the Apostle Paul says that. Why? Because Christ is all in all. He says there in verse, um, he says in verse uh, 10 there, or verse 11, where there's neither Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all in all. In other words, whoever they are, no matter our class, no matter our race, no matter who we are, we ought to put off the idea of being a slob. Uh, you're talking about a barbarian. Barbarians were uncouth. They didn't know. If you were not speaking Greek, you were a barbarian. 
Scythian was even worse. They were hideous people. They were people, if you go to those potlucks and they just take some spaghetti and grab it and just jam it in their mouth and don't use a fork. <laughs> that, that was uncouth. Suppose they sit next to you. That's what the Apostle Paul says. These were people who were warlike, bloody people, people who were angry, people who were uh, um, not the type of people who you would be around. The Apostle Paul says it doesn't matter because Christ died for them just like uh, he died for you, no matter our class, no matter where we are. And my, my career as a, as a ministry started in Somerset, New Jersey. I worked for a pastor named is Bob Cameron. It was a, uh, he was a black man. He was, um, he's since passed about eight or ten years ago. I worked for him. I started off as an intern for a year. Then I moved to associate pastor before I went on to active duty. Our church was about probably 60% black, 40% white, and so on. It was a, it was a good mix. Well, anyway, he wrote a book uh, back in the 90s. I think I've lost it since, but it was called The Last Pew on the Left. That was the name of the book. And the premise was that Sunday is the most segregated day in America. He said that blacks and whites work together on sun, uh, during the week. Um, they often live in the same neighborhoods and communities. The kids go to the same schools. They do all that. But Sunday, black people go to the black church and white people go to the white church. And that really bothered him. Now, I don't think in and of itself, churches with one race is sin. That sometimes that's the way it works. If you go to Africa or Korea or Asia... You know, you're going to see a church of one race. The problem is that when that's what we want, that's when what we seek to keep or seek to protect, when we don't want outsiders to come in, that's when the problem arises. I remember a story of uh, in the south of, uh, of members uh, bringing in uh, people from the inner city to come to church and the elders uh, said, no, we don't want that. Let them go to church in their own community. Conversely, I remember uh, I went out on a date with this woman for a couple of times. I invited her to my church. It was an OPC church. Again, a uh, good racial mix of, of people. Um, and I, she asked a lot of questions. And then she asked, well, what color is the pastor? I was like, what does that matter? Well, he's white. Oh, no, I, I, I'm, I don't want to go. She goes, because I work with white people. I live amongst white people, but Sunday, I want to go to a church where I can worship with my people, with black people. And I, was, I, I wasn't astute enough spiritually at that time to say, well, God's people are your people. But, but that really is the issue and the problem that we've had in our country, is this, that our churches are often aligned politically. You know, I grew up in a Baptist church. It was Democratic. Uh, you were a Democrat almost. You couldn't be a Republican and be in that church. <laughs> and the, the issue was that, you know, that, that's the church. It was a black church. And the preaching, for the most part, was black problems and social issues and stuff. Not all black. Some churches were great. But a lot of the churches, the ones that are popular, the ones that are large, that's what you see. And the white churches are often aligned with what's called evangelical is a bad name now. 
Evangelical used to mean orthodox. Read, you know, you believe the whole Bible to be the Bible. You believe in the, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, that has changed because most evangelicals, a lot of them, don't even believe the Bible to be the whole Bible. They don't believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Evangelical, it means today, is that I'm pro-family, pro-life. Those things are important. Pro, um, Pro-guns, and I love America. And I'm not a Democrat. Well, because of that, the lines have been drawn. And because the lines are drawn, what does that do? That, that leads to division. And the world has seen that. That's why we've had sinful things like CRT and other things, because of the vacuum. We wonder, well, how, how could that take place? Because the world follows the church often. And the world has seen that the church has not been racially reconciled, have seen there's class uh, issues, and they've seen that there's problems and bigotry and snobbery and sexism and all these other things they've seen, and they've gone the other way, and they've brought in sinful tendencies and sinful activities. All right, I'm really behind. Okay. But the Apostle Paul says to put these things off, and then real quickly, he tells us to put on the new person, the new person, well, what does it mean? Real quick, first thing it means to this is this, is to put on love. Put on love. He talks about that, uh, kindness, humility, meekness, all these things of love taken from 1 Corinthians 13. Um, Pastor uh, Troxer this morning talked about forgiveness. We had an in-depth description of all these things, but it's love. God says that love is to be the primary and most important thing amongst each other, that we love each other, that we forgive one another, that we care for one another. Dee puts out weekly about um, different things to help the brothers and sisters on email. People might need to move and so on. And perhaps some of you perhaps look at that and you notice a person, you say, oh, great, I would love to help you, Absolutely. You're like a brother to me or a sister to me. Be glad to help. But then maybe there's someone who offended you. That's possible here. They don't even know that they offended you. But you know it. And when they come near you, you sort of just go the other way. You make a beeline because you really have not sort of forgiven them. And when you see that they need uh, something there, what do you do? You decide, you know what? I'm not helping them. They don't even speak to me. Or that person said something uh, mean to me, or that person did something, maybe the person doesn't even know it, because we all can step on each other's toes. But the Apostle Paul says we must resist that. We must be forgiving. We must be humble. We must be meek. And so we must love one another. So that's the first thing of the new man is put on love. We must continue to love, to be kind, to be long-suffering, to be patient, to be tender and caring with one another. The second thing he tells us to do is this, is let the peace of God rule in your heart. That word there means peace. Rule means like an umpire. I don't know if you guys like baseball, but behind the home plate, there's, there's a catcher's mitt. I mean, there's a guy with a the, with the big umpire uh, jacket on and a chest protector, and he has um, a, a mask on. He's calling balls and strikes. Why? Because he is following the rules. He's making sure that the rules are, are, are executed. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying, that that, um, the, that peace is like an umpire. 
Why? Because just like pitching where you got all types of pitchers, pitches that get out of the zone, not in the zone, you got to call that a ball, call that a strike, and so on. He's saying that the peace of God is like an like um, um, umpire to us. Why? Because we have so many thoughts in our hearts, in our minds. We're worried about this. We're anxious about this. We're concerned about this. We're not sure about this. But the peace of Christ, though it does, it's like an umpire. It takes away that which is, shouldn't be there. It, it helps, helps us to reason together. It helps us to, to be able to function, to have that peace of Jesus Christ in us. Removes those bad thoughts and those bad suggestions. And then he calls us finally to be thankful, to be a thankful people. Are we a thankful people? Not to grumble, but to be thankful. And then let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and in all wisdom. You want peace? You should know the word of God. Let it dwell in you richly. Let the word of God drink it up daily. You know, uh, seminarians, when I was a seminary, you know, I used to say, uh, I don't need to read the Bible because I'm using the Bible every day for writing papers, for doing Hebrew, doing Greek. I couldn't have been more wrong. I was so empty. We need the word of God. We need that devotional time. Why? Be so that not just for you, so that you can help others, so that you can admonish one another and care for one another. What do we listen to? Are we listening to that which causes us anxiety and stress? Are we listening to all the time about how there's going to be a zombie apocalypse? How things are going to go bad? How we're not going to have water? How there's going to be a war? How there's going to not be a famine? Is that what we listen to all the time? If we do, no wonder we don't have peace. The word of God, we ought to do it. And we ought to, and this, the Bible says, sing. With psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we sing together, sing at family, sing privately. Those things is what helps us to be thankful. And we do all to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means to put on Christ. This is what it means that if we're risen with Christ to seek those things above. Put off the old, put on the new. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this exhortation that we need to put off and put on. Lord, we are guilty of these things daily. Give us the grace and the strength to begin to make progress in these things. Help us to put off those deeds which displease you and help us to put on love and tenderness and warmth. Bless us and help us in this regard. In Jesus' name, amen.